human conditions Not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign That's why you hear the same old things they claim Welcome to the Project Censored Radio Show I'm your host for this week, Eleanor Goldfield As we come to the end of Black History Month, Pan-African theorist, organizer, and author Max Rameau discusses community control over policing. That's not community policing. He highlights the importance of shifting power versus reforming institutions, organizing to take power, not ask for it, and the connectedness of all issues from housing and education to policing. Next up, we sit down with Eliana Carlin in Lima, Peru, where she leads us through the clash of crises her country and her people are in the midst of. From the deep rot of corruption, to the violence of state forces, to a constitutionalized neoliberal ideology. Listeners in the U.S. may see our own struggles mirrored in the streets of Peru. A grotesque reflection that we must combat over here and over there for the sake of all of our connected fights for liberation. All this and more coming up now on Project Censored. Thank you, everyone, for joining us here at the Project Censored Radio Show. We're very glad right now to be joined by Max Rameau, who is a Haitian-born Pan-African theorist, campaign strategist, organizer, and author of the book Take Back the Land, which chronicles the movement he helped found in 2006 to combat gentrification and address land issues in the Black community. He now organizes with Pan-African Community Action and travels the country facilitating workshops, engaging in campaign strategy sessions, and developing models for community control over land and the human right to housing. He's also currently working on a book on community control over the police. Max, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So I wanted to start off with a James Baldwin quote, actually, which immediately pinged to mind when I read your quote in a recent Black Agenda Report article. James Baldwin wrote, we used to say, if you must call a policeman, for we hardly ever did, for God's sake, try to make sure it's a white one. A black policeman would completely demolish you. He knew far more about you than a white policeman could, and you were without defenses before this black brother in uniform, whose entire reason for breathing seemed to be his hope to offer proof that, though he was black, he was not black like you. And for me, as someone of Jewish descent, this is also reminiscent of what Viktor Frankl and others have written about the role of the capos, the Jewish guards in concentration camps and this very twisted psychology of wanting to Im- impress the oppressor. And so, Max, I was wondering if you could if you could dig into this a little bit for us, what you would, spoke about in this Black Agenda Report article, the issue that seems to have confounded a lot of folks with regards to this murder of Tyree Nichols and the role of Black officers in United States policing. Yeah, well, first of all, I think the uh, the Baldwin quote is really apropos, and the fact that that quote comes from the early 1960s, I think, and it still is applicable today, says a lot about the system of policing, not about individual cops, but about the system of policing. And even in the uh, famous song, F the Police, there is a couple of lines about how Black police act out when they are uh, uh, when they're when they're engaging with people who in the black community. Uh, so this is a theme that has run throughout uh, the integration uh, of of the police departments in the United States. and the it seems that the thoughts about the role of black police is consistent throughout that time, and that is that they don't make a bit of difference. Uh, in fact, in some cases they make it worse. 
Uh, so uh, uh, I do think that that says a lot to me about what the system of policing is rather than the individual. And then that goes to this moment when we're thinking and talking about uh, a black police. So of course, we're used to the news. Unfortunately, we're used to the news of, of multiple white police officers beating or shooting a black person who they encounter. Uh, uh, but the, the less heard of news is when you have multiple black police officers doing the same. Although in the black community, this is very well known that this happens, uh, that this is common. So uh, I think that that many people in the black community, of course, are confused by it and don't want to then attack a black person. And that's causing some political confusion. And so there's not the level of, of visceral response to this situation that there are to others. I think had this been white cops and, and Tyree Nichols, we would have seen an urban rebellion flash uh, up here. But I think the, the fact that those black cops caused some moments of confusion uh, inside of uh, the communities in general and even inside of social movements. But in the end, I don't think that, that it makes a bit of difference if the cops are black or white. What makes a difference is what is the system that the uh, that the armed wing is supporting? The police really are the enforcement wing of the system. And to that extent, there's really no way to reform it into um, into any kind of decent thing because the system itself, the system that it is protecting and enforcing is itself bad. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we've mentioned before on the show that, of course, police are descended in terms of the, their 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 job. They are descended from slave patrols. So the idea that you could decouple the police from racism is uh, is ludicrous. And I wanted to because it's it, it's Black History Month as well. And there was recently um, and I can't remember exactly which police department it was, but there was some video of a police department unveiling a new car or van or something like that. And it had like Black History Month emblazoned on the side of the car. Yeah, multiple police departments did that. City of Miami and a couple of others. Uh, so so we have these ridiculous images of, uh, of of police vehicles with, you know, Black History Month emblazoned on the side. And I know that your work focuses a lot on uh, community control of the police. And I was wondering if you could, because I think sometimes when people hear that, they're like, oh, is that like the community working with the police? And I was wondering if you could make the distinction between what these cars seem to be an attempt at, like a mm -hmm. inserting police inserting themselves into black communities or co-opting, uh, you know, like something like Black Lives Matter and those those movements. Can you talk about how that's different from community control of the police? Sure. Well, I think this is also where the Baldwin quote that you gave at the at the top was very um, uh, instructive here in terms of the difference between community control versus what they call community policing. So when Baldwin says that the reason you don't want to call black cops is that they know more about you than the white cops ever could, and therefore they have the ability to do more damage either themselves physically or by going to your family and saying things and causing havoc and chaos inside of your own community. I think this is what community policing is. So uh, regular policing is when the cop who slams you on the hood, uh, or chases you, slams you on the hood of the car and arrests you, doesn't even know who you are. The other one, uh, with community policing, they see you, they don't need to, to chase you, to slam you. They, they just go to your neighborhood and they ask a few people and they bring a pie to the grandma and they ask who this person is and then they find out. And then they can just catch you whenever they catch you. So this is, the, but the re end result is the same. The end result is that the person gets arrested. In fact, when you think about it, the end result of the community policing gets more people arrested because it's then it's not just a question of can you outrun this person. Uh, the question is, you know, what kind of ways is this? What other methods or ways does this person have of of, of this cop have of arresting you? 
So I think those are the, 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 that's what community policing really is. And that doesn't speak to any of the uh, uh, issues that we're really concerned about over at Pan-African Community Action, which is who's actually in control, who actually has power over this force. I think a lot of the organizations now and individuals who talk about, uh, for example, defunding the police, uh, they often say that they want to defund the police, and I believe that they that they mean it, of course. But even when they're doing that, they have inside of their own organization some security measures that they take, and even some forces inside that you could call a security force. So they have meetings, and they have people to check who's coming into the meetings, and uh, this and the other thing. So people are not against some security force. People are against a security force that is run by uh, capitalists, by white supremacists, and by patriarchs. And uh, so what we need is a force that is run by people who are workers and people who are anti-racist and people who are anti-sexist. Uh, and that's ultimately what we need. And when we talk about community control, we're not talking about police getting to know your neighborhood better. We're talking about the neighborhood being in control and having power over the police. The neighborhood saying, these are the laws we want you to enforce. These are the laws we want you to de-emphasize. And then when you're enforcing those laws, the, this is the way we want you to do it. And if you can't do it this way, then we can fire you and we can order the rest of our force to arrest you for violating the rules that we set in place. Uh, and those are the kind of things that I think we would want to have uh, happen uh, uh, in terms of community control. And that's the difference between community control versus uh, uh, community police. Yeah, thank you for that distinction. And and I'm also curious, there's the, there's a conversation about how today's police in the United States are, as I mentioned, descended, so to speak, from slave patrols. And there's a conversation about how the abolitionist movement today is therefore ab abolishing the institution of police. How do you feel about that movement and how does that relate to community control over the police? Yeah, so I think, first of all, I have great admiration for the abolition um, movement, uh, the abolition of, of certainly of prisons uh, and even of police. And I have a, a lot of sympathy. I think ultimately I want to get there. I just think what we have to get correct is the sequence. If you're thinking in, uh, in terms of thinking of society in dialectical terms, anytime you have classes, one group of people that has something at the expense of another group of people, then you have to have some kind of security force call them whatever you want, it just, you know, you're, you're identifying correctly that what we now think of as the police uh, came out of the slave patrols. Uh, and that's true as a direct descendant of that. That's that kind of like that lineage. But that doesn't mean that there were no police, quote unquote, not police in the way we think of it now, but there was no policing happening before uh, the, the United States or the Europeans dominated the Americas. Kings and queens had their the royal guards. And even before that, the, the Roman Empire had the centurions. So there were always security forces, enforcement, armed enforcement forces uh, around any time that there's the haves and those who haves have at the expense of the have-nots. You have to have security forces. Uh, and anytime you have any kind of classes, that there, there, there must be security forces in order to maintain the, the, the class relationship. So I think the, what we really need to get rid of if we're talking about uh, getting rid of, of, of the police is we need to get rid of classes. We need to eliminate the situation where one group of people has because another group of people does not have. And until we get rid of that, we're not going to be able to get rid of it because those who have are going to create the forces. I think the problem and the limitation of thinking about abolishing the police before abolishing classes is that if we were successful, so let's say we're wildly successful, we run a campaign all weekend, on Friday we win. 
and the police are abolished. What happens on Monday morning? Does does Walmart open up and say, well, there's no police. I guess we're just going to, you know, uh, take our luck here. No, they are going to hire their own private security force. And the private security force is not going to enforce the ostensibly objective public laws. They're going to enforce whatever the, the the board of directors of Walmart tells them to enforce, and and that we would have none of the public uh, records laws and things like that, which which uh, you know as bad as they are, as uh, Swiss cheese as they may be, uh, they they would be they would seem like heaven compared to what we would get in comparison. When you look at places where they have a lot of private security. Uh, places like South Africa, even in, in Haiti, although Haiti has less of a police force, uh, even there, then those private security forces don't work out well for us at all. And there will be a direct line. It would actually be a throwback to the centurions and to the knights of the kingdom of queen because there will be no state in between the ruling class and the uh, and the police. Uh, it will be the police will be working directly for the ruling class. That would be all kinds of trouble. I think we need to get rid of the ruling class. Uh, and that will result in getting rid of the police. Very good points. And in the, in that same vein of thinking about the steps here, you know, the famous quote, power concedes nothing. How do you get the police and the police, the people who control the police to hand over that control and be like, yeah, you know what? Good point. The community should have control over this entity. <laughs> yeah. So I think let me just say that the answer is organizing. And uh, we have to organize in a way that we can take power uh, ourselves, uh, not organize in a way that we are asking or begging or even uh, demanding of others that we get power. So once we're organized to a certain level, we're going to be able to build up those forces inside of ourselves. As an intermediate point, though, we're still organizing. We still have to organize. What Paca is proposing is that we create a ballot initiative that calls for community control of the police. And this is modeled entirely, by the way, off of the Black Panther Party, who did the same thing in 1968 in Berkeley, California, and in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where they got a ballot initiative. They lost in both instances, but they got a ballot initiative. What the ballot initiative calls for is dividing or organizing the city or the whatever municipality into policing districts. And those policing districts can be independent or they could be exactly identical to uh, the political districts or wards of that city. Uh, so Washington, D.C., for example, has wards. It could match the wards exactly, or it doesn't have to. Uh, it has eight wards, so we could have eight police districts. And then each district would then get a ballot, would get a vote. And the members of that district would get a question. Do you want to keep the existing police force that you have, or do you want to vote them out and have your own police force? You are listening to the Project Censored radio show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Eleanor Goldfield. We now continue our conversation with Pan-African theorist, organizer, and author Max Remo. Here in D.C., we say we live in Ward 8, which is an overwhelmingly Black ward, and we know that you actually work for the white people across town. So we don't we don't think that you work for us. We know you don't work for us. So we don't want this. For, we want our own force that that knows that they came in existence because of us, and they know that we're the ones in charge, and we can fire them. Uh, so so then Ward Eight, for example, would say we would we want to have our own force, and then that means that the police lines will be redrawn, and there will be new police departments. Uh, around town. Maybe there'll be two, maybe there'll be four, whatever the number there would be, then each district could have a chance to get its own police department, at least have a say. So this would do a couple of things. This would democratize the police, uh, number one. And number two is those for those uh, communities that say we want to have control over our police, they would get a say in what the police do and how they do it. So that's how we think we would, we would, um, we would, we would do this. And of course, 
if we win this, we think that we would win in, in, in Black communities across the United States. But if we get this on the ballot and we win and we vote this in, and then the system comes back and says, to your point, you know, how do you get them to come back and says, look, we know we've been talking democracy, all this stuff, but we don't really mean it. You know, we didn't mean this. We didn't mean that Black people could vote their police. We didn't mean you could have guns. So if that's if that's what happens, then we'll be happy to have that result because then we'll be able to say they never meant it anyhow. This is the way it really is. It really exposes the system for what it is. So all we're calling for is democracy. Yeah, pretty pretty simple ask in a country that says it is one <laughs> uh, or a republic or however you want to frame that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do want to discuss something that the intersection of issues, because I think that that's also a very important point, and it really speaks to your uh, your your past work as well. Uh, as as I noted in the in, in the intro, you have a history of dealing with community control of housing, uh, community control over land. How do you feel that that links and in your own in your own work as well, uh, the trajectory from community control over housing and land to community control over the police? Well, we think that community control is the first step towards self-determination, towards saying that we want to uh, exercise self-determination in a in a broad sense over the economy, over housing, over education, over food, uh, over all those different areas of our, uh, of our collective lives. Uh, so we do think there's a connection. I think also if you look at one piece, either community control of housing or community control over police, you can see how even if we won that one sector, of society, we would not uh, be satisfied with that. So let's say we get community control over housing. Well, then great. Now we have housing available. We have community control over land and we turn that land to housing. Then we have housing for people, but we're still hungry. We're still undereducated. We are still then, um, uh, even though we, we have housing, we're still under or unemployed. And so we're now living in a house, but we don't have electricity in the house or we don't have food in the house or we don't have good education uh, so it would solve some problems, but it would just really um, give us more time to recognize how uh, how serious our other problems are. So that would be it on the uh, on that. And just as important, we would be because we don't have a job and because we don't have good education, because we don't have any money, we'd just be hanging around in front of our houses, which means the police would come by and start harassing us for hanging around in front of our houses. Right. So it would it would then highlight how we don't even have it. Conversely, if we get community control of the police then that means we would no longer be harassed for hanging around in our own neighborhoods, but it means that we wouldn't have anywhere to live and we'd still be hungry and we'd still be undereducated. So I think that that winning in one of these sectors would then necessarily result in growing a movement that would then go across to different sectors. And what we want to do is we want to build movements that when they're successful, they don't stop, they don't end the movement, but they actually encourage the movement to continue forward and to grow. And that's what I think would would happen here. But ultimately, we want to string together a series of interlocking and interrelated community control campaigns that would ultimately result in a broader sense of self-determination. Yeah, thank you for that. So, um, of course, it is Black History Month uh, in the U.S. And one of the things that, that I often think is important is to highlight the history that we're not taught in schools, which is basically, I think, most of 
Black history, really. Um, and even though we had Black History Month when I was in school, it was like Martin Luther King Jr. And then let's go to lunch. You know, nobody's talking about Huey P. Newton in, 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 in their social studies class. So I'm curious, what do you feel are some important things to highlight right now in terms of recognizing Either, either through black, uh, either through community control over the police. You mentioned the Black Panthers, but also community control over land. Uh, some, some things that we might be able to look at in Black history that could be guides or inspiration for these fights today. Well, right now uh, there is a lot of talk about community land trusts, for example, as the, the, the it certainly came up significantly uh, when the housing bubble crashed in 2000, uh, 2008, 2007, 2008. Uh, there was talk about, okay, so what do we do? What's the alternative? And there was significant talk about community land trusts and what are community land trusts and how do they work? And of course, community land trusts are just ways of collectively owning land. So instead of one person owning it, then you know you have groups of 10 or 50 or 10,000 people who collectively own the land and make decisions about it. Well, the first community land trust in the United States was in the South, was a collective of Black farmers in the South. So communal land trust, the very idea of community land trust, which has really been picking up steam in the past decade or so, came from black farmers and where and what they were trying to do and how they were trying to survive uh, in a uh, overwhelmingly white supremacist world. Uh, so I think that is an, uh, uh, an important uh, community control over uh, education. We can, still, of course, look at the Black Panther Party because many other examples of local communities who fought for community control over their own uh, their own schools or their own education. There was a, uh, a, a move in the 1970s to have community control over schools in New York City. Uh, in the Bronx, there were Black and Puerto Rican and other Latino communities who wanted to take over their schools and uh, sought to do that and wanted to have these community control boards take over uh, local public schools. And they did so with some limits. And then when they, when they made a move to start moving out racist teachers, teachers who were overtly uh, uh, teaching white supremacy inside of schools that were 90 percent people of color, uh, then the teachers went on strike. And that led to the biggest teacher strike in, in New York City history, in the United States history. The biggest teacher strike in U.S. history was in response to and a fight back against community control. But there was a real attempt at community control over schools uh, happened in New York and, of course, in many other places as well. And there's a growing number of independent Black schools that are opening uh, now. And for community control over land, of course, we had Take Back the Land, uh, which did it in a very particular way that I was a part of. But there's been other organizations who are doing all kinds of work. Uh, uh, other organizations who work particularly in the South that are looking to take over land or looking to build co-ops or community land trusts of multiple farmers, multiple um, uh, housing complexes, uh, and, and to bring the benefits of collective economics to uh, to a particular living situation, which would be just short of self-determination, but which would be intended to work inside of this context, inside of the context of capitalism inside the U.S. Yeah, wow, thank you. And of course, there's 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 so much going on currently. Uh, there's you know you mentioned community land trusts right now in Washington D.C. Uh, my former mutual aid group uh, is working on a on actually it's called the Baldwin House, uh, a yes. um, a co-op. Uh, housing co-op. Oh, cool. Well, yay. Yes. And so as we wrap up here, I want to ask a question because I think that this is this is something that 
um, that has come up a lot in, in organizing spaces in terms of how white folks in particular, but non-black folks uh, or folks who are not of African descent, how we can best support these initiatives, how we can best, in the case of white folks, use that white privilege, not just in terms of you know the housing issue, but perhaps more pointedly, the policing issue. Yeah, so I think there's a, a a couple of things. One, of course, is as as you you know you from you just did is to is to support uh, independent Black organizations, not in the, not just individuals, but actual organizations that are doing good radical work that are looking to shift power. I think that's the key lens to look at it. What work is intended to shift power, as opposed to uh, reform uh, existing institutions. So look for the work that is that looks like it's moving towards shifting power and support that work. So that's one one way, and I think that's that's a really significant way of doing it. The second way, though, I think that that is really um, uh, underestimated and and not pursued often enough, is there needs to be more organizing happening inside of white communities, and like we can't do that if white communities are uh, are attacking and are displaying uh, white supremacy against black communities, and black people can't go and do that. Uh, but white communities, or people inside of the white community have to do that. So I think organizing white communities to be anti-racist is some of the most important work that's happening right now. We can we can see the importance of it as we, as we see the lack of it uh, happening in white communities, and you have a growth of Nazism and a growth in the form of of, of MAGA and and these other strains, uh, right wing Christian. Uh, uh, ideologies. Uh, so you have these these um, uh, these growing white supremacist groups, uh, overtly white supremacist groups, uh, which need some sort of intervention. And I think that that their ability to grow at the rate at which they're growing would have been limited if there would have been better organizing inside of the white community. So I think that's probably some of the more important work that that, that has to happen. And that means getting white folks to help to help getting white folks to recognize the privilege that they have, not that that they don't have problems, and not that life is not difficult for them but that they do have privilege inside of this society and to fight for an actual fair society. And a fair society would help everyone all the way around uh, when we win, uh, but we have to win and everyone has to be in the fight in order to win. I think those are the two important things to support work in black communities that are shifting power and then organize inside of white communities into anti-racist groups. And let me say on, on that, on a related note, I think some of the most important work that's happening now in black communities are black men organizing anti-patriarchal work inside of the Black community. But I think all of those things uh, have to happen, and that's our equivalent inside of the uh, Black communities, is to end uh, patriarchy inside of our communities, but also support women who are uh, moving into positions of power inside of our social movements and, and other organizations, uh, but also ending patriarchy among men, breaking down the, the patriarchy and the organization of men inside of our community. So we need to be doing the same thing in our communities, but we're asking that our allies do the same inside of theirs. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was, I'm going to, I'm going to ruin it because I don't remember the exact quote, but Bell Hooks said something like, we have to love men just for them being men, not because of what society has made us expect men to be. Um, so yeah, patriarchy harms men um, very much. And yeah. Uh, yeah, and I usually say that white privilege doesn't mean that you've had an easy life. It just means that your life hasn't been hard because of the color of your skin. Yeah. Um, I think also in the same way that patriarchy hurts, uh, uh, hurts men, white supremacy also hurts white people. And when white people come to recognize that, then I think that will be a watershed moment and would allow uh, societies to move forward. 
You're listening to the Project Censored Radio Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host this week, Eleanor Goldfield. We'll continue our program after this brief musical break, so stay with us. I'm on the border of Bolivia, working for pennies, treated like a slave. The poker fields have to be ready. The spirit of my people is starving, broken and sweaty, dreaming about revolution, looking at my machete. But the workload is too heavy to rise up in arms. And if I ran away, I know they'd probably murder my moms. So I pray to Jesucristo when I go to the mission, process the cocaine paste and play my position. Okay, listen. Thanks, everyone, for joining us again at the Project Censored radio show. We're very pleased right now to be joined by Eliana Carlin who is a Peruvian political scientist and master in public policy. She is a lecturer at Universidad del Pacifico and a social entrepreneur. She is the co-founder of No Akeko and Heroinas Peruanas. As an advocate, as an activist, she advocates for gender equality and human rights. Eliana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Eleanor, for paying attention to what is going on in Peru. Well, I feel that it's important, uh, particularly for folks in the United States, to pay attention. And there's so much to discuss here and so much that is just not covered at all in the corporate media in the United States. But I want to first let listeners know some context, uh, what's been going on in the past couple of months in case they've missed it. On December 7th, uh, President-elect Pedro Castillo who won in July 2021, upsetting the uh, the dynasty choice of uh, Keiko Fujimori. And President-elect Pedro Castillo on December 7th attempted to dissolve Congress before it could debate a third impeachment motion against him and said that he will form an emergency government and rule by decree. And that same day, lawmakers voted overwhelmingly to remove him from office for, quote, moral incapacity. And uh, Castillo was then arrested for, quote, rebellion. Then Vice President Dina Boluarte became Peru's first woman president. And she said at the time that she intended to serve out the rest of Castillo's term until July 2026. And the United States then pledged to work with Boluarte. And a few days later, protests spread across the country. And by the most recent counts of what I've seen, uh, some 48 people have died. And so, Eliana, with that context, if I am in fact correct about that, could you tell us how the situation is right now, not just in the streets, but also in the government uh, and what people feel about Boluarte and and the currently ousted Castillo? Well, yes, that was a, a very good introduction. Thank you for that. Actually, if we talk about the violation of human rights specifically, which is something that worries uh, a lot of people the most, we count now 63 deaths, most of them directly killed, directly shot by the public forces. And we have enough um, videos, a lot, a lot of footages, and a lot of photos from people that were in the surrounding areas. So we have proof of the terrible way in which the public forces have been behaving these days. And there is a terrible pattern that um, that shows that these people have been not only shot in the head, neck, or chest, but also most of them are indigenous people. Most of them are not uh, Spanish speakers as the first language actually, and are located in the southern area of Peru. And the majority of them also are located in the mountains, in the highlands in southern Peru. And uh, this 
uh, obeys also to structural racism and discrimination that we suffer here in this country. And this is what is going on these days. Unfortunately, we have institutions that are supposed to promote democracy or to protect, protect democracy historically, and they are behaving terribly. We've been through a dictatorship during the, the whole 90s. We are now going through a, a very, very special period of time in which you can see how the forces are aligning, trying to enforce the current government trying to cover up for the killings, trying to cover up for many, many other violations of the democratic rules that we are experiencing, experiencing not only the violation of human rights, but you can see in democratic institutions are being completely destroyed in these two months. And we are also witnessing how it is so, so easy and quick to actually put down so many positive reforms, not only in the political arena, but in the public policy arena. And since our institutions are really weak, they are also not having to work that much to just swipe it all very, very quickly. So this is this is a period we are, we are living now. Regarding uh, Dina Boluarte, She's rejected by more or less 75 of the population, according to every poll, to all the polls, even the polls that are usually higher by the corporate media, can't just can they cannot lie. So it is like not even in the in the most wealthy population in Lima, in the capital of the country, she's uh, supported. So the only way she has to stay in office. An authoritarian authoritarian regime, and as you can see, like she's going to do what she needs to do to stay in the government palace. Yeah, a very violent attempt to keep office, uh, obviously. And I, I I want to dig into that a little bit more, but I also want to back up a bit because you mentioned the history here, and I I read a little bit about what uh, what an anthropologist named Rafael Barrio de Mendoza called Fujimorism which he wrote as a sort of oligarchic parliamentarianism, where private interests and not uh, least of all the Fujimori family rules over policy and congressional power. And I know that you're a co-founder of a group called uh, No to Keiko. Can you yes. talk a little bit about this political dynasty and the kind of power and corruption at play here? Yes, of course. So we were ruled basically by a rightist dictatorship during the whole 90s. And surprisingly, or not surprisingly, this dictatorship was heavily supported by all the oligarchy and, of course, all the corporations and the military. And that's the way they ruled the country during the 90s. No respect of human rights. Actually, Fujimori has a lot of corruption charges on his file, but he is imprisoned for human rights violations terrible human rights violations. And that is a political culture that is very, very alive among the most privileged class in the country and especially located in Lima. Sadly, I live in Lima, I live in Lima so I'm a close, close witness of all of that. So we are experiencing like the reborn of all this authoritarian culture 
that was only like, you know, under the sheets. It actually has never been gone completely. And uh, the military and especially the military, but now also like a kind of militarized police that we have right now uh, that are actually in charge of all the terrible repression we have witnessed uh, during the past two months are very, very, very strong. And they they have a, like a very, very strong role now in the Inas Boluarte's regime. But uh, they are kind of like remains of Fujimorism. And what is uh, what is going on is that uh, the first uh, election, general election in which Keiko Fujimori took part as a presidential candidate was in 2011. And she ran again in 2016 and she ran again in 2000, 2021 when she was defeated by uh, president, former President Castillo. The three times she actually lost by a very, very, by a, a very short distance. And this last time it was like only, I would say, 40,000 votes. And uh, we experienced that before in 2016 when she was defeated by rightist uh, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, who actually had to make a, a, a pact with the Fujimoris when he was already in office because they had 72 out of 130 congressmen. So it was impossible to run the country without permission of Fujimori's congressmen. And we have had six presidents during the last six years. So from that, that point, we started a very unstable period of time. But going back to Keiko Fujimori, and I apologize for my broken English. I'm trying to practice a little bit more. So going back to Keiko Fujimori and what Fujimorism means. So as I said before, the political culture is very, very authoritarian because uh, when Fujimori first gained office in in the 90s, we were in the middle of a terrible, terrible, violent period of time where we had terrorism led mostly by terrorist group Sendero Luminoso, Shining Path, in the translation to English. Um, it is You can find it in the literature as Shining Path that were like a Maoist, very, very bloody, savage, criminal terrorist group. And we were actually suffered, suffering it a lot. And uh, sadly, the areas where actually Shining Path was more active were the areas where right now the uh, armed forces, and the military and the police are actually repressing people the most and where we can find most of the killings occurred lately. So these are also the, the areas of the country where, where you can find more poverty, bad indicators in almost every social aspect of public policy. So so Fujimori gained office and he actually uh, was able to put together a, a group in the police institution and they actually captured the leader of Shining Path. And actually, that was the end of the violent period in such an acute manner. So things started to get better in that sense, at least. Um, and that's how Fujimori ended up turning into such a totalitarian regime with the ghost of Shining Path and the ghost of terrorism. Things like episodes like mistakenly killing 20 people, 
civilians and innocent people were excused by the government using shining path as, okay, uh, maybe these people were innocent, but, uh, you know, sometimes you can make mistakes. And what if they were terrorists? That mindset that actually dehumanized not only like the politicians, but of course the citizenship is still alive. So this is the Fujimori legacy. People from the government are uh, trying to link the civilians that were shot to terrorism. Of course, Keiko Fujimori is also an actor in all of this. She actually had a meeting with President Boluarte, I would say four or five uh, days ago. And of course, she ended up in a press conference saying that she was going to support this government with her political party and that President Boluarte is doing a great job trying, you know, to to keep things in order and to keep the keep the country calm and uh just trying to keep terrorism away from us again. So this is like a cycle of violence that we are experiencing again, but uh, its roots right now are in, I would say, racism, discrimination against these Indian Andean population that are, of course, upset and are, of course, mobilizing, demonstrating on the streets, and they are angry and they have reasons to be angry, not only because the violation of human rights right now, but also because they are still poor. Politicians keep talking about uh, economic growth and that neoliberalism has modernized the country and all of that, but we have people living in a pre-modern moment of time in the middle of the 21st century. So how come people can be calm with a situation like this in the country? So we are now having like a clash between crisis. So the current crisis and of course, our structural historical cleavages. And that's why I think this is a very, very particular time, period of time. Yeah, thank you so much for all of that context. I think it's important to to understand that history. Uh, otherwise, we can't understand the present. And I've read some uh, critiques of Castillo from the left. And you mentioned, you know, people are obviously frustrated because politicians have a history of being corrupt. Um, And some of the things that I've read that I'm curious about your thoughts that he uh, he appeared to be the ideal candidate, uh, but that he got into office and then he paid back political favors. He elected corrupt uh, people and cronies to office. He didn't advance real leftist policies. So I'm curious how do you view Castillo's brief presidency and what do you feel would be the ideal structure for the government in Peru? Well, I would like to answer that question. That's a very interesting question. Thank you for that in like, in two different lines. So first of all, uh, Castillo won this election in, a, in legitimate, transparent elections and the not only the right-wing political parties, but also all the corporation and economic power and the media um, just refused to accept that and to acknowledge Castillo as the president 
from the very first moment. They put together a very well-structured plan where a lot of money was needed, and they called for all the uh, big law firms in the country. So the biggest law firms in the country that are also located here in Lima, that work, that are the lawyers or of all the corporations and all the politicians, you know, and basically the owners of Peru. So these law firms put together a strategy in which they located all the, the voting tables in the country where Castillo had most votes, basically, and they were rural areas in which he was, he was like 98% of the votes and stuff like that. They officially challenged those results to the electoral authorities. They really physically tried to eliminate those votes because Keiko, Castillo, Keiko Fujimori lost by just 4,000 votes. So they were actually looking for those 40,000 votes to win the elections. That was the way Pedro Castillo started his government. You're listening to the Project Censored radio show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host this week, Eleanor Goldfield. We'll now continue our conversation with Peruvian political scientist Eliana Carlin. First of all, they didn't acknowledge him and they tried to eliminate the votes. So if we talk about a country in which around 40% of the population live under the poverty line and can not actually fulfill their basic requirements, their basic needs, and they cannot feed their children with dignity. They don't receive public education of good with good quality. They cannot attend pub- a public hospital. And you talk about democracy. For 40% of Peruvians, democracy means going every five years to vote. And on top of that, you have that that the most privileged people in the country tried on purpose to eliminate their votes. How can you after that talk about democracy? So that episode that is to me insane, and I'm sorry I'm not talking like in a very, I would say academic, academic way right now, but I just want to share with you also my frustration, I guess. So that episode took place. Pedro Castillo assumed the presidency, and two months after that, he uh, was in he he received his first uh, impeachment process in Congress, and that's how he started. Okay, so the reasons why they behave like this are, of course, again based on racism, discrimination, but he is completely and fully an outsider, okay? He barely knew Lima, for example. He he was, I think, the first president that didn't even have a, a, ha- a house in Lima, okay? he He's a rural person, a teacher in Cajamarca with like a completely different background, completely outsider from Lima, and that was unacceptable by the political power and the economic power. That was unacceptable. Um, regarding like the work of Castillo already in the government, as a result of what I just explained, of course he also was a person that didn't was he he wasn't even part of the political party that actually called him to be a candidate 
on the first place. And that political party has several also corruption accusations. So in general, uh, some authors talk about Peru as a democracy without parties. So the crisis of the political parties is also very, very serious. And that means that we don't really have expert politicians, or at least not a lot, okay? And if you add to that, that civil workers and the people that actually work in the, buro in the bureaucracy of the country are also not really very high quality specialists, then you have a terrible combination because Pedro Castillo didn't really have many contacts or many people to call to assume positions that are technical positions and that need some very specific backgrounds, you know, academic backgrounds and also professional experience. So that was a problem because mistrust alliances that could have been made at the beginning of the government of Castillo, that, but that actually it was impossible to set something up uh, re because of all these cleavages and the huge distance, much, it, it is not only a physical distance, but like a historical distance between Lima and the rest of the country, and especially between Lima and the rural areas. So if we talk about management of the state, probably that wasn't also a very good situation. Yeah, thank you. I think that's, again, very important context. And and I want to get this question, even, even though we don't have a lot of time, because I'm curious, usually in the United States, at least, the vice president, the president seem to be kind of the same, like kind of the same flavor, I guess. And it's like it appears to me, like from what I've heard about Castillo and what I'm hearing about the uh, the tyranny uh, under Boluarte, how did they become one ticket? Like, how did Boluarte end up the vice president of Castillo in the first place? Well, first of all, I, I would like to say that this is also partially because of the uh, absence of real political parties. Because the president of, of Peru Libre, Vladimir Serrón, was also having some investigations for corruption, so he wasn't able to run for president. So he kind of like picks, choose like a regional leader, you know, that was close to the people and stuff like that. People in Lima didn't even know Pedro Castillo exists. The president of Peru Libre, Vladimir Serrón, uh, he picked Castillo and they were looking for another politician and and strictly Boluarte had a, like a very light political participation in the past. She ran for mayor in Surquillo, like a very like, popular district here in Lima. And she, she seemed progressive, but she wasn't really part of any leftist political party. It is not that you have like a political party with an ideology and you have a plan for the next five, 10, 15 years of the country, and then you work for that. The reality is that having a political party here is a very good business. And ideology sometimes is accessory. And in the case of Peru Libre, I wouldn't say it is completely accessory because they have very, very strong Marxist ideas, uh, but they were very strategic when they put together like the presidential duo in this case. And that's why also the relationship between uh, Boluarte and the 
um, Vladimir Serrón, the president of the political party, wasn't very close. Boluarte started having meetings with uh, people from many cor many different corpor corporations and people from uh, Perú Libre's political party were very, 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 very upset about that. That That's, I think, a first part of the problem. But the second part of the problem is, I can say what I've, what I've seen and what have been suspicious, or at least what I have been reading that was suspicious for some people, is that the day before the attempt of coup by Pedro Castillo, the ambassador of the U.S. here in Peru had a meeting with the minister, the former minister of defense, right the day before. And that is public information. It is on Twitter. You can see it. There's photos of, of the meeting. And right after Pedro Castillo was already out of the government and in prison, the embassy of Peru, of the U.S. in Peru, also released a small statement saying that they support President Boluarte. And I wouldn't say that someone was expecting Boluarte to behave this way. So many sources say that after the first big killing that was, I think, in Abancay, that is actually where she was born, she wanted to resign and that the military basically didn't let her leave office. And some sources say that in that particular period of time, she also received a phone, a phone call from authorities in the United States saying that they like we're going to support you you don't need to resign if you put that those things together I don't see how she can govern she can run the country in any other way she doesn't have any support inside the country in Latin America actually she's doing very 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 badly there are voices voices that say that Boluarte is completely isolated and she's mostly in touch with people in the military and the armed forces and her first minister now that is basically a clown. And I really, really wish they both end up in prison because of the 60 people that, that they have killed. It was under their political and legal responsibility and they are people suffering. Six of them were minors. They were children walking outside their houses and they, they have been shot. And these people deserve to be judged for violation of human rights, and they deserve to spend the rest of their lives in prison. And if justice exists, that is going to be their future. Absolutely. And kind of with that, I mean, that obviously sounds like a very clear-cut demand. I wonder briefly, as a, as a final note here, what would be or are the demands of the people that are still in the streets, and what is your hope for Peru for the future? Okay, so the demand at the very beginning, when the protests were smaller, was the freedom of President Castillo. So that was the demand at the very beginning. Still, some people are asking for freedom for Pedro Castillo, but one demand that has been sounding louder are calls for a constitutional assembly. Uh, because our current constitution that was approved in 1993 after a coup run by uh, Fujimori. It is a very, very conservative constitution, so you can imagine how the dominant powers here are very, very against any possibility of changing it. More than a constitution, it is actually the, an attempt to constitutionalize neoliberalism in general. It's, it's the way to convert 
an economic model into a constitution. But I think that if we don't go to a, a constitutional process, it is going to be very, very hard to calm things down in a more sustainable term. Because even if we have elections tomorrow and Boluarte is out of office, all the, the problems, poverty, you know, discrimination are still there. We need a moment to calm down, to sit all together with representation of all the different ethnic groups and workers and everyone, because we are a very diverse country. We need to sit down all together, seeing each other and have a serious conversation about what kind of republic we do want. So I hope we can get into a constitutional moment. I personally think that moment already started. I think that we need to make it formal. Hopefully in the next year, it is going to be a little clearer. And that does it for another episode of the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Eleanor Goldfield, co-hosting with Mickey Huff. For this episode, I've also been your associate producer, and Anthony Fest is our senior producer. Project Censored Radio airs on roughly 50 stations across the U.S., from Maui to New York. And you can find all our previous archived programs by going to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram just before we get deplatformed. And be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your digital tethering devices podcast application. Please feel free to contact us, share your feedback, or learn more about our work at projectcensored.org. And see our new publishing imprint, The Censored Press, at censoredpress.org. To learn more about my work or to contact me specifically, please visit my website at artkillingapathy.com. You can also follow me on social media at Radical Eleanor. Last but not least, thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Genocide wars, fall for little boys, and the weapons manufactured pay for why taxing while the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons build the capacity, citizens, and the times when the master thief combine.